Hello and welcome to The Roadmap, a Bristos-produced podcast about all things tech law. My name is Annika Pohl and I'm an associate at Bristos. I'm really excited today because Toby Crick and I will be talking about open source. Toby is a partner in the tech team here at Bristos and also one of the preeminent lawyers in the UK on open source. Last week, Toby and I attended the State of Open UK conference in London. And in November last year, Bristos hosted Open UK's Open Source Software, Infrastructure, Curation and Security Conference. Toby is a thought leader on the subject and wrote a chapter, Corporate Concerns, Audit, Valuation and Deals, in the leading book on the subject, Open Source Law, Policy and Practice. Keeping with the ethos of open source, the book is both published by Oxford University Press and available online for free. Welcome to the roadmap, Toby. Hi, Annika. Thanks for having me here and um, thanks for that big build up. Looking forward to discussing this. Today, we're going to focus on the open source phenomena, which includes open source software, hardware and data. We've come a long way from Aaron Schwartz breaking into MIT to download journal articles to make them open source and the general skepticism that the use of the term would elicit when I started studying and practicing law. In fact, we've come so far that in Open UK's report, The State of Open, the UK in 2022, I found that 100% of organisations that were three years old or younger used open source software. And these organisations found that the top three benefits were cost savings, collaboration and community. But a little concerningly for lawyers, 45% of companies don't know how their organization manages copyrighted software, and only 48% have a security policy. With the widespread adoption of permissive license models such as MIT or Apache, we have seen open source software being increasingly leveraged by our clients. Something that Toby and I chat about quite regularly is how important it is for well-managed organisations to embrace open source software, but still have an eye to risk mitigation. Toby, why is understanding open source so important in a corporate context? That's a good question. I I think the first thing to say is the reason it's so important is what you've just said is every single corporate organisation uses it. Virtually every organisation, every organisation uses technology Virtually every organization wouldn't be able to function without it. And of them, 100%, as we've just heard, use open source software. So understanding the technology you use, not necessarily to the extent of being able to hard code it from scratch, but understanding at least what the technology stack your business runs on is made up of and the bits of it you within your organization are responsible for is crucial. And open source is part of that. As you said, certainly, never mind when you started, when I started, it was open source. Uh, No, no, you can't have that. No, no, no. strip it all out get rid of it and now we're in a different world where it's almost like if you're not using open source that would be unusual because at least the bottom line because everything you were doing was was proprietary or homemade from scratch that would be problematic in itself so saying all of that it is important because understanding it is important because everybody uses it and it it is different to just buying proprietary software that someone else owns and someone else maintains it is free and open you can download it and then do with it roughly speaking what you wish and if you are in charge of something you need to understand it in order to use it properly yeah toby i completely agree i guess part of the the really big draw card of open source software data and hardware is that you don't have to do those building blocks from scratch you know that's why people think that they have proprietary code but actually there will normally be some open source components to it for example matplotlib or any of the other open source libraries that are imported in the early stages of building that yeah 
and even if you are reliant on proprietary software, mostly you will then have to make it integrate into your systems. Mm -hmm. And then you can either do that from scratch or you can and you will use open source components, open source libraries to do that. And so that's why you must you must understand it. But there are, of course, a bunch of legal risks associated with using it. And I think any discussion on this, we have to go back to those those, those first principles, which of course open open source users, hard coders, etc., will go, this is all old hat. But actually, if you're coming at it new, whether you're a lawyer doing due diligence on a, on a business that runs open source for the first time, or, you know, working one of those businesses trying to assign a value to your business, this, these are some things to think about. And I think the first risk that you always turn to is the one of copyleft or true copyleft. Now, open source, we could have a whole long podcast about different open source licensing models. The key point is that all open source software is licensed. Somebody else owns it, whether it's a foundation like Linux or a coder in their bedroom or someone who's tried to be as anonymous as possible. Someone owns it and they license it to be used by third parties using a copyright license. This is as legal as it gets. Now, that's where it stops getting legal because many, if not most of these licenses are short and sweet and they don't go into detail and they don't give a lot of protections. It's just a right to use really. So you don't have a lot of the protections you typically see. But but within that context, you have two broad kinds of license. You have a license that allows you to use the software as you see fit, including taking it and commercializing it. And then you have a license that tries to preserve the open nature of the software as it goes through the value chain. So it says, if you use the software, great, do what you like. But if you try and distribute it, if you try and commercialize it, you're not allowed to. You have to license it on, on the same copy left, as they call it, terms. And that's quite important because if you are using components in your software to run your business, well, fine, doesn't matter what the restrictions are. But if you're trying to build a product that you then want to make money from, you have to be very careful as how you integrate those copyleft components to make sure that you are integrating them in a way that doesn't oblige you to give your product away for free. And I think that's the first thing to think about. I think, as you alluded to, there's another component of that that's really important. So these licenses tend to be quite short. So even yes. if it isn't a copyleft license, what are you even getting in a permissive license or perhaps not getting? Yeah, well, exactly. So the first thing is, are there any restrictions at all? So that's the first, is it a truly permissive license to you know, go away and commercialize it? Or are you restricted from commercializing it? If you, That's the first question to ask yourself in a diligence exercise. Is the software you've created using open source components being commercialized, right? Red flag, go and check the license terms to see if you're allowed to do that commercialization. However, if it's not being commercialized, doesn't matter. Or if you've integrated it in a way that avoids that copyleft issue, doesn't matter. But then you look at the license itself. And whereas normally you'd be like, what are our warranties? What are our support and maintenance obligations? Mm -hmm. What indemnities do we have if there's a third party claim? How broad is our license? None of that will be there. And that's the next sort of legal risk is these licenses it's free, right? So, you know, you can't really expect much, whether it's from a foundation or a coder in their bedroom. You know, you can't expect an indemnity, you can't expect a warranty, and you won't get one. So that's the other side of that risk is one is what's the nature of the license given? And the second thing is, whatever the nature of the license given, there will be none of the usual panoply of protections you expect in, in a proprietary license. And so those are the, the two legal risks. And then beyond that, there was the legal, i.e. contractual risks within the terms of the license. But beyond that, that lack of protection will be around indemnities or or warranties and support and maintenance. Then there's a rider question which kind of flows on from that support and maintenance point, which is um, the question of scalability and robustness. 
support and maintenance is so important. So often we see that as the ongoing sort of tail at the end of a software development project. How will this be supported and maintained? And we see it coming up again for open source. It's a very hot topic in the world of open source now. And there are lots of sort of examples given of hugely important systems, whether it's in the healthcare sector or the infrastructure and energy sector, where certain components are maintained by basically volunteers. And yet if those components break or God forbid, a security vulnerability were to be exploited by bad actors, there'd be no one really to stop it. And so how that is addressed is a wider question for policymakers and and the large corporations that have found themselves using these components. But at a most basic level, if if you're running a diligence project on these things, you have to flag, how do you support and maintain these open source components? Because if you are the person using them, it's on you to decide how you're going to identify security vulnerabilities, identify bugs and patch them. That, I think, is the sort of where the legal side of it or the lack of legal protection hits the practical, you know, practical day-to-day reality of operating a software stack. There are a range of different strategies that we often advise our clients to adopt to manage some of these open source risks that you mentioned, Toby, in particular that intersection between the legal contractual risks that we've identified and then what happens on a practical day-to-day level. Often the strategies that we suggest really bespoke to the context of the company and the company's risk appetite. But there is one risk mitigation strategy that nearly all organizations can implement and hopefully our listeners could use as practical takeaways from the episode today. And that is open source audits. What are the two main approaches to open source audits, Toby? Well, good question. And if you step right back, what's an open source audit? It's finding out what you use. And a lot of the time you do these deals and you find yourself asking your client, you know, what do you use? And they can't answer. So then they go and ask the technology team who also can't answer. That's a red flag in a diligence exercise in and of itself that they don't know the answer to that. But you know what? You've got to understand, particularly if it's an early stage or a scale up company, maybe they don't because they haven't had that much discipline around it. Or it could be a very advanced company that's perhaps had less good practices and it's building on software that's been built and built and built by many different individual developers over the years. And you need to find out what you're using. And so, as you say, you run an audit. There's the quick way. And then there's the more expensive and more long-winded way. The quick way is automated audit. And the longer way is to have an expert audit. And, and really, the expert audit builds on the automated audit. The automated audit is a bot, crawls over the software, compares it to libraries such as GitHub, etc., and identifies code that is clearly open source software. Usually, the code has an identifier in it. But those bots will identify, who knows, talk to a different expert about different a different software model that you can use the percentage varies but you can get open source tools to do this which have 70 80 percent accuracy you can get proprietary tools which probably have a higher accuracy and but a higher cost and those automated audits will give you a report and that might be enough that might be enough for you depending on the value of the deal the risk of the deal the importance of the code but overlaying that is then to have an, an expert to interrogate that data and interrogate on a human level how the software is built who's built it where it was built and build up a bigger broader picture of, of what the business relies on and how the software is integrated maintained and kept and that combination the automated audit with the expert review on top is the sort of the gold standard and if it was many 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 zeros in the price or absolutely critical if the sort of the open source or source code components were crucial to the value and success of the business then you would probably be advising whether it's your client buying a company that uses this or the company itself planning to raise money or um 
you know, win big new clients. And actually, that's quite an interesting thing. We used to see these audits in the context of M&A, but increasingly now, if you are responding to an RFP for a technology system, the RFP will say, you need to comply with these security standards. And in order to comply with those security standards, if you if you haven't been maintaining a very robust audit trail of what you've been doing, you're going to have to recreate it by running these kind of audits and filling the gaps that, if any, that they find. I guess part of the reason why we've also seen audits really increase, particularly for our clients, the frequency with which they're conducted and not only happening at the M&A stage is in part because of the log4j vulnerability that occurred. And the organizations that were worst affected were those who didn't know that they even had open source software. So it's really important to know if you have it, how you're using it. If you're unsure, run an audit. Um, Thanks, Toby, for sort of running us through those first uh, points, what we've established based on our conversation so far is that most companies in the UK are using open source software, whether they know it or don't. Some of the risks associated with it and at least one practical strategy our listeners can implement to mitigate these risks. If it's okay with you, Toby, can we change direction a little bit? Yeah, for sure. Cool. In our team, we do a lot of complex commercial contracts and deals for companies that have tech at the core of their business. It seems counterintuitive that a business which is giving away free software, data or hardware may have a high valuation. How can open source affect a company's valuation? Ultimately, it depends what they do with the software. If they are using the software internally to run an app or an ad tech solution or a health tech solution or whatever it might be, that solution is what's getting delivered and getting used by their customers and they're getting paid for. It's not actually the source code itself being distributed. I think if you're just a business distributing soft source code alone, there's probably not much value to be added. Yeah, to be made out of that. But if you, however, have a source code, to, uh, an open source tool that you then provide expertise, consultancy, etc. on, you can have a very high valuation. I mean, Red Hat famously was sold to IBM for a very large sum of money because it is the, an expert organization at, at maintaining particularly Linux open source systems. They're not distributing Linux. They are helping companies deploy and manage it. So that, that's sort of the pure end. But The rest of the world is made up of companies distributing solutions that have software in them or implementing solutions, business solutions that depend on technology that is open source. And here, I think the way open source affects a company's valuation can go one of two ways. I think you can make a strong argument to say that we're using open source components. We're managing them well in a clearly audited fashion. Look at us. Aren't we efficient? We're not wasting money on armies of coders building a proprietary stack of code that's then going to have to be supported and maintained forever by an army of coders in a language that will gradually go out of date. No, it's it's open source components. We manage it in a dynamic way. We're constantly evolving and we're not employing armies of coders to code from scratch. We're employing armies of people to develop solutions, not just write code from scratch. Um, conversely, of course, if you have built a solution from a hodgepodge of open source components without really understanding them, without even understanding the copy left risk that we talked about at the top of this discussion, without understanding the potential for security and maintenance issues to arise that we talked about at the top of this conversation. You could have a solution that looks like it's going really, really well, earning lots and lots and lots of revenue that could just disappear in a puff of smoke. And so treading that line or is what all those businesses do. You don't want to spend too much on the maintenance and the audit because otherwise you'll make no money. But if you don't spend anything, you don't think about it, it doesn't even occur to you to think about it, your valuation is obviously wrong. 
And between those two poles is the reality where most businesses are. And that's something I think there's a range of good practice. Most CIOs are aware of it. Most CTOs are aware of it. You know, most coders are socialized in a world that is aware of what good practice looks like. And I think our role as lawyers is to help our clients develop and implement that good practice, help our clients spot it where it isn't there when investments are being made or not. Talking about good practice, particularly when we're going through an M&A process, we can see how open source can be addressed by different organizations and where those organizations fit on that spectrum that you just outlined. Could you talk us through a little bit about the different components of M&A and how we see open source being teased out and pulled out? Good question. Yeah, and I think I think it's basically when an M&A transaction happens, uh, an organization is put up for sale and another organization comes along with some money to buy it. And it, it crystallizes all of the points we've just discussed. And obviously, as, as you know, the reason we care about is it co- has the copyleft truly viral software been managed properly? Have the security and maintenance issues been addressed? Is there a clear audit trail? Is about when it gets lively is when someone's coming along going, well, I'm going to give your shareholders millions or more of dollars or pounds or euros or whatever it might be for a business that depends on this stuff, this open source stuff. And that is when, you know, you want to find the answers to whether or not it's worth spending that money on it. And I think, as we all know, you know, the M&A process kind of starts with a discussion between the principals about the price and, and the nature of the business. Probably there's not too much discussion about tech at heads of, or source code at the heads of term stage. But, as, you know, the next stage is you start doing due diligence. If you're putting yourself up for sale, you're putting a bunch of data in a data room, that data needs to include what your technology stack is, what your IT security is as well as what your GDPR is and your employment contracts and all the rest of it. But just focusing zeroing on the, on the, on the source code and the open source element is if you're a technology business, you need to put enough in there to give potential investors comfort that you are a well-run and well-managed organization when it comes to using software. Can that get a little bit problematic when we move on to warranties? For example, you mentioned how short some of those license terms were at the top of this conversation. How does that now come into play when we get to warranties in an M&A process? And I think it takes us right back to the beginning of the conversation. Even when you were a, a young lawyer, certainly when I was, you know, there were no warranties. The warranty was there is no open source because people were so scared by it. I think also, it was so people it was so untested and unknown. And now I think that, you know, so the, the transaction, you know, as we were talking about, it starts with the diligence, then the warranties, then the, the negotiation on the, the share purchase agreement where you have the, the warranties and the disclaimer of warranties and the disclosure game. But what you what you are wanting to assure yourself of as a buyer is that if you buy this company, you're not suddenly going to find a, the costs of sorting out an absolute disaster zone of a mess of source code is going to wipe out all the potential profits for the next two or three years. What you want to know is that it's been well run. So you do the due diligence, they answer the questions. And as we've seen in many, many deals, that's often when these audits that we were talking about before get run. They either get run as someone's putting together a data room or they get run when someone like us comes along and goes, where's the uh, open source audit in the data room? Um, Yep, yep, it's just coming. And there it will appear and you go into the metadata and you'll discover it was produced the week before. But, But, you know, whatever. Often as not, they've actually been doing all right, these companies, because as I said, coders are sensible people, CIOs, CTOs, etc. know what they're doing. So you, that's the diligence piece. The warranties piece is nowadays you're looking for warranties around security. You're looking for warranties around how true copyleft licenses have been used. 
you're looking for warranties around the steps taken to patch and update and maintain that software. In other words, you're looking for warranties that they run the business properly. And um, and then at that point, as always happens in these things, they will say, well, yeah, there was this time where we left a vulnerability unpatched for six months, or there was this time where we did X or Y. And again, that gives you the information you need about the business. If it's crucial, the deal dies. If it's important, there's a price negotiation. If it's deemed not important, people go into the deal with their eyes open. And as lawyers, that's all you want is to have helped your client get as good a view of the, the thing they're buying as possible. Um, and that process, then you end up with any luck, some reasonable warranties, some disclosures that aren't too all-encompassing. And I think it, it comes on to, again, our role as technology lawyers is to point out the issues, understand enough about the tech to flag concerns. If it's a really big concern, then you go to the expert audit level you get that done you get it really tested but if you don't need but often you don't need to go that far because you get enough comfort in this phase i know that sometimes it can be different though if the business itself is an open source business so you mentioned for example red hat um what are some of the differences there um i think if your business is distributing open source software um you need to make sure that if you're distributing open source software for money you are using truly permissive it is subject to truly permissive licenses. And that reminds me, you made, made a point earlier about the weakness of license terms. I think it's a given that if a company is using open source software, you're not going to be able to go after the writer of that software for IP infringement claims. That you just have to rely on the fact that that software is widely used and no one's claimed so far. So you, know, you, you, you have very little recourse beyond the actual transaction. But that is something you can look at. You know, you've not had any claims you're made aware of and so on to, to try and protect yourself in that regard. But if you are distributing code and there's a particular kind of business that, that packages up open source software and distributes it in as a solution, not as open source. And if they are doing that to code, which is truly copy left, they are in breach of license and they're running a real risk of lawsuits coming in at them from all directions. And that's, that's a very interesting one. So just to give you an example, if I package up a software solution and I license it, it to companies to be used and all the company gets is an API to use my cloud solution, so they never get to see my code. They just load data into my cloud solution, the data gets processed and gets sent back to them with some value add. If actually I'm using components which were licensed to the world on an open source, truly copyleft basis, so if you distribute them, including via software as a service models, which increasingly copyleft licenses do, I'm in breach of license and the, the person or more likely the foundation created that software could potentially injunct me and all of my customers. And so I think that that takes us into a different world. If, if you're looking at a company and that's what they've done, you have two choices. They either have to reverse engineer out all of that software and hope no one finds out they breached it before or, you know, they're out of business. Or they continue to get away with it. But if you're investing in a company on, on the hope they get away with it, that, that's, a, that's a commercial decision, as we say. <laughs> um, Toby, I think that some of the key takeaways for our listeners today, at least the really big one, is to be aware of what open source software, hardware or data that the organization is using and how it's used. Um, and also instituting good practice around proprietary and open source software code. What are some of the other ones that we didn't get a chance to touch on so today? Beyond the importance of audit, I think I think increasingly you hear a lot, and we're in the tech industry and we're in the legal industry, two industries that love jargon. Well, lovely bit of jargon is the SBOM, which is the um, Software Bill of Materials 
And that is kind of the output of the audit. And actually, it should be the input to the audit. Here's our bill of materials. This is the components that make up our software stack. The auditor checks and sees if that's correct or finds things you haven't disclosed, amend the SBOM. And having that knowledge of what you have is the foundation to being able to monitor it, keep it secure, keep it patched, etc. And with SBOMs, we've seen a really large growth of those, particularly in the US, after Biden's executive order on improving the nation's security in May 2021. Yes, I, I mean, I think I think that's popularised the term beyond you know the CIO or CTO's office, and leads into actually the secure by design conversation, which is if you're implementing practices to keep design security in at every level, which of course then feeds into your GDPR compliance, etc. And then the other, another one is cost control. If you're just whacking code into a stack willy nilly, it's okay, it's free code, but you know managing that, maintaining it, auditing it costs money. So you need to think about cost control. You need to streamline the design, which of course is good coding practice. But if the emphasis is ship new product, ship new product, and of course it is in a startup or a scale up, sometimes corners get cut, which is bad for security, but sometimes stuff just gets done that doesn't make much sense if you ever stepped back. So think about cost control and then keep it all under constant oversight, audit and control. So the other thing is that at Bristow's, at least you and I, Toby, we always talk about how important it is for a lawyer to understand the underlying technology. So to all of our listeners, we also recommend that even if you aren't a coder to set up a GitHub account or an account with another open source repository, play around with the source code and the different programming languages and see what we're banging on about today. Um, thanks for listening and don't forget to subscribe, download and share this podcast. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Toby. Thanks for having me. Um, we want to make the roadmap as practical and informative as possible for you and your business. If you have any ideas, suggestions or feedback on this or future episodes, please don't hesitate to email the roadmap team at the roadmap at bristows.com or use the hashtag the roadmap pod. We'll be back with another episode soon. 